An aid worker's personal security is impacted by where the aid worker is, who they are, and their role and organization. Organizations have a duty of care to take all reasonable measures to protect their staff from foreseeable risks, including those that emerge due to personal characteristics. I am Tara Arthur with the Global Interagency Security Forum. Join us as we explore the interplay between inclusivity and security risk management. Hi, Catherine. How are you today? Hi, Tara. Very good. Thank you very much. And you? Great. Thank you. And thanks for being here. Oh, well, thanks very much for having me. Well, as we've been talking in this series a lot about inclusivity and security risk management, we thought it would be great to talk to you, Catherine. So to kind of kick things off, it would be great if you could share a little bit about yourself and how you got into the sector. Uh, thanks very much. Well, I joined the sector a very long time ago in the early 1990s. So I started out working with different NGOs, um, mainly in conflict situations. So I went to the United Nations and the International Committee of the Red Cross, and then back to the United Nations after about a decade in the middle, working uh, for my own uh, training company, uh, which is for humanitarian and development workers. So now I work for the United Nations uh, in the headquarters in New York for the Department uh, for Safety and Security. So that's in the training and development section there. For those who may not be aware, um, UNDSS is the Department of the United Nations providing professional safety and security services to enable UN system operations through trusted security leadership and solutions. And in fact, we have four goals. And uh, the first one is to be a workforce known for excellence, expertise and inclusivity. Wow, thank you. That's quite the background. So as you've come from such a long-standing background in the humanitarian sector, it would definitely be interesting to hear your reflections on where we've come to on this topic of inclusivity. And maybe you can give us a little bit about what inclusivity means to you. Well, you're right. We have come a long way in our understanding um, about inclusivity, uh, but we've got a long way to go still. I think that many of us have really sort of developed over time. So when I started, white saviorism was, was the norm and myself and others, we sort of had a distorted, almost unconscious, but nevertheless colonial view. I think back to what we were doing then and what we were trying to achieve, albeit with good intentions. I'm glad that nowadays um, the sector is more, much more inclusive and perhaps less sort of arrogant than it used to be. But then you know, maybe I'm biased because I'm a white British person. But it, it is really my sincerest hope that going forward with inclusivity and especially around uh, gender, disability and race, that that will spread a bit more into the security sector. And I'm certainly seeing some progress there in, in the last few years. Yeah, that's that's good news to hear that things are heading in the right direction. It sounds like it'd be great for you to talk a little bit about the kind of role and your involvement in looking at inclusivity within the security sector in particular. <clears throat> Well, we are fortunate in many ways in the United Nations that we have a very clear mandate. Uh, we have clear policies and guidelines and even you know, clear instructions as to what is required of us in terms of the core values, UN values of professionalism, integrity, and what we're talking about now, uh, which is respect for diversity. So respect for diversity at the UN is also backed up by rules and regulations that are designed to protect staff members from discrimination. 
So actually the framework, the architecture, if you will, is already there. And it's a question really of what does that mean in reality? You know, how do we actually apply that to the security sector and UNDSS in, in particular? So we're, we're also fortunate, actually, that we do have an Undersecretary General, uh, Gilles Michaud, who is a very big proponent of the person-based, uh, the, sorry, the person-centered approach and a genuine supporter of inclusion. So you know uh, very well, I'm sure, that there are people that jump on bandwagons, but, but not him. And having an environment that, that sort of promotes and ensures psychological safety is, is critically important. So we want staff to be who they are without fear of discrimination. And I'm just reminded that recently um, a transgender colleague shared her story with all of us. And that's something that would have been very difficult even a decade ago. So in training, uh, we have all the backing that we could wish for and we develop tools and resources that support our learners. So in my case, that's in the advisory team and we're working with security personnel. And we have more and more resources uh, available to enable them to do their jobs. So from that perspective, we're actually in a good position to move forward and hopefully the benefits of these resources will become apparent over the next probably two years. Um, but also actually at a higher level at the, of the, at the UN, there are lots of actions being developed as well and taken. So you may be aware that our Secretary General uh, has formed a task force on racism and that also various initiatives have been launched to address unconscious biases and to promote inclusive, inclusiveness as well. So more recently, the UN has issued a new set of, of UN values and behaviours that also inc incorporate uh, inclusiveness. And they're not obviously just related directly to security specifically, but it's important that the inclusiveness that we're seeking in security is actually in line with the overarching values and behaviours as well in the wider UN system. So inclusivism uh, in international security isn't an, an isolated concept. We've obviously got a long way to go and the job's by no means done, but I do think that the framework's there and the foundations are there, if you like, to move forward and I'll just give you uh, an example of that. We've launched a project, a product, sorry, online for the what we call the integrated security workforce, which is basically all of UNDSS and security uh, colleagues from agencies, funds, programs, peacekeeping, political affairs, and so on. And the program is called the Orientation Pathway. And in that pathway, there's a big section on UN values and how to apply them in a very practical way. Uh, with explainers, resources, animations, case studies, and so on, to help our, our personnel, our, our target audience. But I also think it's really quite challenging because when there's change in, in any organization, whether that's the UN or anywhere else, that's also cause for concern for some personnel. And I think that we also need to be cognizant of that and look at how we can support everybody and not only the more perhaps diverse profile of personnel who are coming into the organization. And that's important, isn't it? Also looking at the environment that more diverse personnel go into. So when, when we think about things like staff retention, uh, as we're thinking about uh, gender parity, for example, we're not putting anyone in a difficult situation and we're supporting the environment that they're going into, including the receiving personnel, as it were, so that nobody's being set up to fail. So I think, I think you know, there are lots of things that um, we need to just be aware of and, and concerned with. 
And one of those is the sort of perception, if you like, that someone, for example, when we're looking at gender parity, someone of um, a minority is somehow less experienced or or less knowledgeable than, than perhaps than the average. And in the UNDSS, that is the average person is male, might be. So there are some assumptions that I think uh, that, that, that get made. And I remember asking myself this question, was, was I a diversity hire? And that, that's a horrible feeling, um, especially if it's a question or it's a perception of the existing personnel. But actually, you know, nowadays the, the recruitment process is, is much better and it's improving all the time. So we're making more of an even playing field, if you like, and that's the kind of environment that will, will benefit from all kinds of people. So it's, it's like a team sport, isn't it? You know, with any sport, you're going to need a team with different types of, of skills and special attributes. And security is no different from that. So we need to bring, and uh, we need everybody really to bring that magic that they can into the organization, but then also to support them properly as they move through their time and their service to, to the beneficiaries, to the, the people and the communities that we, that we serve. And actually, um, just thinking, Tara, that the listeners today uh, may be interesting, interested sorry, to know that our department will launch a major recruitment campaign in January of 2022, which is associated to a communication campaign as well, to attract uh, a more diverse workforce. Because for a long time, uh, or traditionally rather, uh, I should say, UN security has attracted those with a police and actually, like me, a military background and therefore a, a sort of of a specific culture. So we're now encouraging everyone with the right sort of superpowers, for example, in communication or, or soft skills, as they're sometimes called, in addition to their knowledge, skills and attributes to apply to our vacancies, uh, to make sure that we have the right blend of personnel to respond to the challenges that we all face. Because as you know, a homogenous workforce can't meet the needs of a non-homogenous homogenous clientele. And I recall, in fact, in, in almost a decade of um, security training, so very many humanitarian development workers saying to me, well, you know, I'm interested in a career in security, but I don't have the, the right background, I feel. And almost always they had real hands-on conflict and proper programming ex experience, you know, in difficult circumstances. And my reply was always the same, same question. Well, why not you? And so far, no one's been able to actually answer that. Why not you? Well, that's really well said, Catherine. I think you definitely hit on some some interesting points in particular the, the launch of the campaign you just mentioned is really sounds like a great initiative that's going to carry forward. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of building on what you've just shared and, and, and the conversations that we're having about the person-centered approach and, and also the intersection with, with where HR and staff training and, and the retention of staff kind of interplay with one another. And, it would be great if you could talk a little bit about how does something like the person-centered approach weave into what some of you just some of what you've just shared. Well, I think I think there is an understanding uh, in security that we we also need to reflect the program staff that we serve, and also by association the beneficiaries and the communities that we serve as well. I hope that that's going to be better understood. And, and thinking how that actually works in reality—that's an interesting question because there are different levels. 
So we're looking at this uh, today and now in the sense of personal security. So, for example, in a person-centered approach to security relating to security briefings, let's say, uh, where we're no longer just confining ourselves to the more kind of traditional threats, explosive threats, shooting threats, crime, and that sort of thing. But we're very much looking at the kind of threats that might affect different personnel related to their personal profile. And so we've got that level. We've got the level which is slightly different too, which is the security risk management on a, on a broader scale. So that's where in the United Nations, we're actually challenged by the fact that we've been drawn towards the sort of one size fits all approach because of the sheer numbers of people involved. So you might be, let's say, let's take the example of security briefing. You might have 80 or so people in a room at a time, especially in a peacekeeping situations. So how do you really personalize that? And I think the, the key here is something that others such as Julie Spooner from UNHCR have suggested and developed as well, is this idea of understanding that we're not just dealing with what, what we've known, if you like, as so-called vulnerable groups, women, disabled people, people of an ethnic minority in a particular setting, gender minorities, sexual minorities. None of that. We're having to go beyond that, really, aren't we? So what we're saying is, yes. Uh, you need and we need to cater for and be aware of those vulnerabilities. And we need to make sure that we're providing, if you like, sufficient advice, information, standard operational procedures and so on for those people, but informing everyone. So neither individuals or groups are sort of singled out, but their risk is addressed. And we're doing that on a, on a bigger scale. And I think there, um, the United Nations does that on a bigger scale. But when you bring that down to sort of the individual level, that's much, much more difficult in UN security, as any change we know is. There's another thing here to consider, and that is about the, the individuals themselves, their abilities, their knowledge, their know-how. And the fact of the matter is that if you take someone with an intersectional vulnerability, uh, that includes the fact that they are in a particular location, they belong to, let's say, an ethnic minority, maybe have a disability, maybe they have a diverse sexual orientation. And we look at those not in the singular form, but together, and how that would amplify certain vulnerability. That's the point that we really need to listen to the experts. And that is the person themselves, who's uh, those with intersectional vulnerabilities, rather than rely exclusively on, on security personnel. And I wonder how much of that we can, can really harness and make our security risk management measures on a personal level and make them a bit more tailored. So the other thing uh, as well, I think it's been quite, quite well developed and makes sense to me, is the idea that whatever those measures are, that uh, all personnel need to be aware of them so that they don't sort of inadvertently uh, expose their colleagues to risk, but also ensure that um, nobody's obliged to disclose private information about themselves where, you know, actually it isn't anyone else's business, except that they actually need information specific to their own circumstances and location uh, to help keep them safer. And that's, that's something we're definitely working on right now, and I hope um, to see adopted going forward. And I'm actually quite confident about that, because partly because it's being mainstreamed in training by building on our existing security risk management framework, and it makes sense. And if we support our learners, so our security personnel sufficiently, well, that's something that they would very much want to take forward because as many of them will tell you, they want to be part of the solution, not, not part of the problem. 
And there's a tremendous feeling of rejection of the status quo that I get listening to our security personnel. And they, they see problems and they say, well, we've never really been trained to deal with this. And maybe I come from the police or the military or another sector, you know, altogether like academia or, or journalism, for example, they might be an analyst. And those things that they may just have not come across before. So the more support that we can give, the better it's going to be. And sometimes that means people making themselves a bit vulnerable and saying, you know what, actually, this is just beyond my experience and competence. I need a bit of help here. And that's why we should be very much working alongside those people. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Catherine, you know, I, I think one of my favorite things you just said was that the persons themselves are in many ways the experts. And sometimes that, you know, yes, that you have to make yourself vulnerable to understanding what you need as well. So some really interesting points there. And it has me wondering, as you're talking, how can you help your colleagues through training and your initiatives unpack their individual unique risk and kind of be prepared for whatever context they might be journeying to? And... Also, you know, what are some examples that you might have of how this looks in practice? Mm, well, that, that's a really interesting question. So th there are lots of, of different opportunities that we might might get. So um, one of those is, is training, obviously, I would say that, but we can only uh, reflect the existing structure and policies. Um, but one, one opportunity is, is briefing. Um, but then when we're looking at a, a culture of security, which is really what this boils down to, which is uh, security personnel being role models of um, UN core values and behaviours with everybody working together. And in the United Nations, uh, our personnel know that security starts with them and that everybody has a security responsibility. And that's notwithstanding the responsibility of the host government, obviously, wherever we might be a guest or, or living, that, that's important to just, to just to mention there. But when we look at the culture of security, that means that everybody's clear on the aim of, of what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to deliver. We have a mission. Security is not for security's sake. It's there to enable safer operations and enable delivery you know, of our mission. So that's absolutely fundamental. And if everyone's got that idea on board... And that helps with things like, you know, funding and resources. Uh, we can't have programs without resources. We can't have programs without security and it requires funding. So if everyone has that sort of shared understanding to begin with and is working in partnership, then I think that opens people's minds maybe to the understanding that we're not the project prevention officers, so-called, but, but working together to better understand programs and for program staff to better understand security and where we might be coming from. So I think that is a positive start. But moving forward through that and uh, understanding not only the programs, but then the personnel having those solid relationships uh, based on, on mutual trust and respect. And right there, that's the time when personnel are better able to share their concerns, maybe all share their expertise relating to their inter in intersectional um, vulnerability. That's even better. And that enriches everybody. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And that important link between programs and security in the heart, you know, of really enabling that programming to go forward. It really is that kind of relationship, like you said. So in thinking about 
that and your role and a bit of the history of where things have gone, I'm wondering if you have any, um, like, mini case studies or a story example of someone who might have really benefited from where this work has come and how far it, how far this work has come and has kind of benefited from this intersection of, of working together better. Well, that's really interesting. So I'm, I'm not sure I can really inter- answer your question uh, like that, but I'm just, I'm just reminded as you were speaking there of something that happened when I was training actually a few years ago. And the client was a human rights organization and we're in the headquarters and we're doing some training on sexual aggression management and prevention. And a participant uh, was severely visually impaired. And she said to me, can you tell me where the materials are uh, that I can go through them again? And I remember thinking, nope, I can't because there aren't any for you that, that are accessible to you. Um, and I'm not prepared. So I'd done the homework. I hadn't, I hadn't asked in advance and, and I hadn't got it squared away. So, you know, here I am letting this person down basically by not having anything to offer. And what I would say since then really is that we have got an awful lot better in terms of training, especially. So now there are guidelines for, for one thing, there's a, a disability inclusion strategy in the UN. And we in, in the training and development section, we wrote uh, a security trainers inclusion guide, you know, for our UN uh, security trainers. So it's clear and, and it helps us and guides us um, to ensure that there is genuine inclusion, if you like, across the board. So that's a training example, but just making sure that there are voice recordings, that there are transcripts, that we're using the right software and it's the right kind of, we're making those sort of considerations. Does that work in the field? Well, UN volunteers have done a really good deal of work on this issue, uh, as have many United Nations organizations and programs who've recruited personnel with a variety of different disabilities. And they have learned so much through that process and have obviously been made, you know, richer for it in terms of, you know, opening everyone's eyes, if you like, to what we need to do to do better, to get more people in the field who aren't, you know, able uh, and saying goodbye to ableism and seeing those benefits, not just because it's the right thing to do, because of course it's the right thing to do, but because everyone benefits from it, you know, so much. Uh, so it's an area I can see a lot of change in and I hope more change is coming. As I'm a person with a, a disability, so I'm, I'm wearing hearing aids right now. And I'm really lucky to have supportive colleagues who make accommodations. And one would hope for that anyone working for the UN, you know, would be of a similar kind of mindset. So it's a question of awareness, really. And also not assuming that you know what's best without hearing from the actual individual what they might need and, and want. And also how they can contribute in a, in a very sort of unique way. And that's kind of the key to all of this, I think. Yeah, um, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. It's enriching to know that we're heading towards the right direction and hopefully more improvements will be made towards being more inclusive for all people, especially, you know, who wish to support the work that's underway. I'm wondering, you know, you've just shared some really interesting examples of how this work comes to life for security risk management and for operations in the field. And it would actually be great to take a step back a bit more in the SRM lens of how does security continue to work with partners on this? So, for example, how does security work with HR? And, you know, you also stated, um, excuse me, you also started to talk a little bit about this earlier. And I just thought it would be great for us to kind of unpack a bit 
how you collaborate with your peers to make sure this is front and center and that there's an, there's a clear understanding of where security and inclusivity sit and why it's important to the entire organization. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, well, that's actually a tricky question because I'm not even remotely qualified to talk about HR. But what I can say is that we've had some very productive collaboration and consultation with our H HR uh, department in, in UNDSS, and they've been uh, they've been integral really in our in our development of the orientation pathway that I mentioned before. So they were involved not just in the planning and the development, but also really going through reviewing things carefully going through hours and hours actually of online training and then we've taken their comments very much into consideration and making the changes that are necessary and and actually that's an example of what what happens when we we work outside silos and as we go on as we build confidence we can we can make reasonable accommodations where they're needed and and we can benefit um, and we need to share those stories and, and move forward as I mentioned before uh, you know we had a staff member came out as transgender and spoke about it in a town hall meeting and the outpouring of support, the, the respect, really thanks to that individual's openness was, was absolutely phenomenal. And that sends a message and it, it reverberates literally all around the world because this person did something that must have been, I imagine, very difficult to do. And she has the courage and the support to make that transition and to work in security, which, let's be honest, is, is pretty conservative. It's quite a special environment, actually, isn't it? And then to help on top, you know, other people on top of that, it's, it's quite a sobering thought, really, I think, for many of us. So that's something that, you know, we can be very grateful of, grateful for, sorry. But it also tells us that um, if someone can do that, then there are other things that we can do. And in the end, all the challenges we face are relative, aren't there? There, there are other things that we can do to step forward and trust one another to be able to do. And I think that's key as well, that element of, of trust. Yeah, that, that element of trust in that story is, is powerful. Thank you for that. I think, you know, that's a strong message that many of us appreciate hearing. You've shared previously some conversations about language and the way we define certain things. It'd be great if we could talk a little bit about that and how certain words might come into play when talking about personal profiles, especially within your experiences in the UN and, and also maybe your experience and background over time within the sector. So, you know, talk to me a bit about some of the definitions that we use around inclusive terminology and how that interplays or might be supportive of how we look at the person-centered approach and security risk management. Well, that, that's very interesting. I think that these changes, they do seem to happen quite, quite gradually and in, in very sort of small incremental steps. I'll just give you an example, actually, with the use of pronouns in a signature block, you know, at the bottom of an email. And I think that sends out a really important message, doesn't it? That, that we're aware of pronouns, that pronouns are important. And it's something that anyone could do, really, if they wanted to. And actually, I, I heard as well the other day of someone who also put the fact uh, that they are dyslexic in their email signature. And, and again, I think that sends an important message to say, if I was a learner, for example, or a program staff member, and I received a message from him that, let's say, it's a security advisor, and it had the pronouns or the fact that somebody was dyslexic, for example, in the signature block, and I myself had a learning disability, I might be there thinking, well, this is great. 
there's awareness and this is someone who's going to understand me. And then they may come forward and say, actually, look, the material in this format doesn't work for me. Or they might think, well, actually, I don't identify as either male, female or any gender. And these sorts of really small but significant changes are, are really important. And the other thing as well that I'd like to bring up, uh, if I may, is this idea that when we, we mention LGBTQI plus communities, communities, plural, because it's, we're not just one homogenous community. There are communities as there are everywhere. But it seems to me that um, when we talk about vulnerability, that we tend to, tend to sort, of so, sort of focus, and rightly so in some cases, on, on sexual orientation, on gender identity and so on. And we need to consider as well race and other intersectional elements. And we focus on this, which again, it's very important and um, disability again, as I mentioned before, and that sort of intersectionality is, is critical. So we have to understand that that is absolutely, you know, it's fundamental. And this might be a bit controversial actually, but I would also like to mention that there are groups of people, there are staff members, there are human beings out there who have vulnerabilities that nobody is actually concerned about because they are perceived to be invulnerable because of their gender, let's say their race, their, their seniority. Let's say they're a cis man, they've been, they're white, they're, they're senior, but actually there's vulnerability there in certain contexts with certain threats where they overlap. So I think the person-centered approach um, brings us instead of, of looking at you know, what you might call just vulnerable groups to a point where we talk about, about people and the context and the threats in that context and their personal profile, including their intersectional vulnerabilities and how they, how they coincide. And that's where we need to be making our sort of biggest efforts that we're not just saying blanketly, you know, ah, oh, well, there's a woman or there's a lesbian or there's a disabled person. There, this person is, is, is automatically vulnerable, you know, because that's just very simplistic and it's often sort of incorrect and we're incorrect in making those sorts of assumptions. And in any case, most of our, our personal profiles are not visible to others anyway. So I think, I think we need to sort of take a more sort of nuanced uh, approach uh, in this. Those that we think of as, as vulnerable people might feel vulnerable themselves or they might not. And they might belong to a group that, that isn't considered vulnerable. Well, what about them? So let's think about everybody and put our resources, our efforts, ourselves into finding those sorts of solutions based on the priorities that we might see. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. There is something really important about that and almost worth repeating because the fact that each person's unique characteristics can interplace so much in any given context you know, is, is key and, and how important that is for people to just acknowledge and also understand. So thank you for that example. Are there different terminologies you find in different contexts that you might have to contend with? How do you coalesce around that? And have you found a way forward through those kind of those conversations? So for example, do any of these terms not necessarily conflict, but do they challenge one another when you're trying to address a certain issue or provide materials? Do any of these terminologies actually have any countering impacts? 
Well, actually, you know, there are difficulties. In in United Nations, obviously, we're working in multiple in different languages. And translation sometimes can be very difficult. Luckily, we do have experts on hand, but it's hard for our personnel in the field. And especially when they're talking about, for example, sexual related threats to, you know, use the kind of, you know, to know which kind of terminology to use. And especially in some conservative contexts, I think people feel really uncomfortable about certain threats that they might associate perhaps with one group over another. So I think language is is fundamental and not just language, but dialects as well. And all of the variations and nuances and the euphemisms that kind of come with that. So that's the case, isn't it, really across across the sector? And um, it's not just an issue for security by any means. But I think we are getting there with the terminology. At the same time, I can also sort of empathize with our personnel sometimes on the security side. They're working with obviously highly intelligent and capable program staff who may be quite used to this kind of terminology. And then they're thinking, oh, hang on, I'm not confident. I actually don't know what to say. And if I say this word, it might not be right. I might offend somebody. So I'm just going to ignore it and, and hope it goes away or be you know, defensive in some cases, you know. And I mean, nobody wants to offend anybody. Um, They want to help. That's their job. So that can be, you know, really quite difficult. And especially when it comes to uh, reporting as well, different words uh, are used as as euphemisms. And uh, so that's where we have to be quite careful about the the taxonomy that we use and making sure that everyone's on on the same page. But I think the more conversations we have person by person, you know, PDF by PDF, even website by website, the more our discourse is going to improve. And then when we realise, of course, that we, we have to learn as well. And I'm sure, Terry, you're the same as I am. I learn things all the time. And I do make mistakes in, in terminology. Um, but I think being open about it is the way to go. And um, if you can open that door, I think other people you know, might be more willing to kind of come forward and just say, look, you know, I'm not confident to, to talk about this at a briefing or I find it really hard and people ask these questions in training and I don't know whether to say the word disabled or do I say handicapped? I can't say handicapped anymore, but what do I say? And I think our response as well, you know, isn't critical when, when we and others make mistakes is to be understanding. Because at the end, we, you know, we're all in this together, aren't we? And we can all do better. So, you know, I learn every day and I, I look forward to doing more and better and supporting our security personnel who, who work in very difficult circumstances and, and who contribute so much as well. That's very well said. Very, very well said. Thank you so much for that. You know, I think, I think that we all have a lot to continue to learn and grow, as you've noted. I think what you've shared, there's definitely some really helpful thoughts for us, for many people, as we try and continue to build on our understanding of one another. So, Catherine, I really enjoyed hearing so much of your experience and your background and this conversation that we're having around inclusivity. And I just want to give you an opportunity to share reflections or any takeaways that you think would be really important for us to walk walk away with today. Well, something that I, I learned from um, Pagao Rajabi and Philip uh, Berslav is that inclus- in inclusivity, everybody is a winner. Absolutely, everyone is a winner. And that the, the benefits of having greater diversity in whatever form that may be far outweighs any effort that we might make uh, in terms of you know, reasonable accommodation. 
And as we all experience that going forward and we all experience what different colleagues can bring, as long as we're sort of appreciating everyone's gifts and skills and uniqueness that they bring to any team, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. And I think that we can do more and better. But um, as we appreciate the sort of extra special qualities that, that new colleagues might be bringing to the table. Uh, thank you so much again, Catherine. Your words have been really inspiring and helpful today as we continue this conversation. And it's been really lovely having you and, and such an honor. So thank you so much. And, and we look forward to, to continuing this conversation in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me and the pleasure was all mine. We'll see you again. The Global Interagency Security Forum is a member-led NGO with a global network of over 130 member organizations and affiliates. We are committed to achieving sustainable access for populations in need through improved safety and security for aid workers and operations. GISF's original research, collaboration, and events drive positive change in security risk management across the humanitarian sector. We operate according to the humanitarian principles and lead on best practices and in innovation by pushing for a collaborative and inclusive approach to security risk management.